0: Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to um, the second big event of the LSE Festival. So obviously we have a whole week of events and this is just uh, one of them and I hope you'll all be, um, this isn't your only visit to join the LSE. Um, of course it's not just us in the room tonight, it's also a large online audience so I'm to extend a welcome to them um, and just a note that we will be um, recording the event and um, hopefully for a podcast so usually these events uh, reach a far wider audience even after the fact. Um, Other things to note are um, that we will use the hashtag uh, LSE Festival in case you'd like to tweet, but of course if you're using your phone, please keep it on silent. Um, Also there's, for those in the room, only sadly a reception after this, just here in the foyer, there's also an exhibition that you want to take a look at. And... um, Yeah, I think uh, that's it in terms of housekeeping. So uh, my name is Jennifer Sheehy Skeffington. I'm an assistant, uh, sorry, recently promoted to associate professor in the, (laughs) God, it's the little things, Um, in the uh, Department of Psychological Behavioral Science here at the LSE. I've been involved in the LSE Festival for a number of years and very excited to chair this event. Um, I'm going to introduce everybody here as opposed to before they speak. Um, So, we have Jens Madsen, who's a colleague of mine in the Department of Psychological Behavioral Science, assistant professor. Um, Jens is a cognitive and social psychologist, did a PhD in cognitive decision sciences at UCL, and broadly researches persuasion and behavior in dynamic systems. So he's going to start off um, by giving um, us kind of a few minutes of his thoughts. Uh, next we're going to hear from uh, Laura de Moliere. She's a behavioural science consultant, also with a PhD in cognitive decision sciences from UCL. Um, but most recently has been head of behavioural science at the Cabinet Office, the UK Cabinet Office. So re- this is really a government perspective on thinking about change and thinking about behaviour. After that, we're going to complicate things even further by hearing from a lawyer, an <laughs> activist, an academic, uh, Professor Connor Gearty, a professor in the law department at the LSE. Um, so Connor did his PhD in law at Cambridge, and he's um, broadly interested in how belief and behaviour affects democratic stability, discrimination, information fragility, and environmental sustainability. Not that we'll get to cover all of those. I hope we won't... <laughs> you won't try and bring us through all of those tonight. And... Um, then to move, so that, that's one thing about legislative change. Things, things really get messy when we start thinking about politics, which is why we really appreciate having um, Stella Creasy here as MP for Walthamstow, <laughs> um, also an LSE a graduate with a PhD in social policy. Um, where she also worked with members of our department, looking at the life world of social exclusion. Um, And Stella has been a very successful backbench campaigner on a number of issues, including payday lending, abortion rights, and hopefully will talk us through um, some of the messy realities of trying to achieve change. Um, So this question of change, really, uh, just came about... Um, on reflecting of this idea that, you know, LSE tries to think about understanding the causes of things um, for the betterment of society, right? You know, clearly, if we all just get together and we all just, you know, use our expertise and study things correctly, then we can figure out the right policies, push them out in the world, and it'll all work out rosy. It doesn't seem to work that way. It seems to be a bit more complicated. And that's really what what ties together um, the speakers of today's event, is to try to figure out why is that. Um, have we adequately taken into account the complexity of the systems in which we're intervening um, and the complexity of the humans um, who make up those systems? Because, um, because humans have their own motives, have their own agency and are just easily compressible into um, maybe our mathematical models or experimental designs. So that's why we set ourselves this challenge of actually reaching completely across the spectrum uh, and and combining academics, lawyers, politicians, uh, civil servants, and just kind of see what comes up. And we really welcome your own input, too, to this conversation. Um, We'll have the uh, Q&A session later, um, both in the room and online. Um, So for those in the room, please keep an eye out for the roaming mics. I'll I'll, um, direct them towards you. And then we have somebody taking questions online through the Q&A function. So that's it in terms of introductions. I'm going to hand over to Jens for uh, his kind of brief introduction and how you think about some of these problems.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Jennifer. Um, So I thought I'd kind of set the scene in a a couple of different ways. First, just to give you a couple of real life examples, Um, because there's a lot of really well intended policy making, right? Like that sort of tries to tackle problems. So, for instance, in 1973 in the US, um, they legislated that if you found endangered species on land, you couldn't develop as much on that land. Uh, perfectly reasonable. Uh, people started killing endangered species as soon as they spotted them on the land, right? Um, as a way to respond to that change. Not a desired uh, un- uh, consequence, of course. Um, there are uh, a case from Turkey where a perfectly sustainable fishery had been working and operating for decades. Then uh, government came in, uh, put a communal tech, which is a total allowable catch of how much the community could catch. And all of a sudden that instilled a sense of competition which drove up a race for fish and uh, ultimately depletion of biomass. More recently, we've also seen when 4chan went in and tried to sort of ban a little bit more, or go and and, uh, hold people accountable for their usage of words on the platform, and people then migrated to 8chan where they could be, quote-unquote, more free, uh, meaning they could um, uh, engage more in hate speech as well. So you can have these like really poor unintended consequences when you're trying to sort (coughs) of a little bit ham-fistedly trying to go in and ram on policy or interventions. I think that has to do with a failure to appreciate the system as a whole and a failure of uh, uh, appreciating the imagination of people Uh, because people are trying to find workarounds on the policies if they have a particular goal. So really, like, the systems, how they emerge and manifest themselves is a product of individual goals and capacities, so for instance, if you want to make some money, um, you can uh, like try and work around that uh, like total allowable catch, right? Um, if you don't understand the social interactions as well, because these are non-linear. For instance, like driving this competition that leads to this sort of spiraling of competition. So the interactions between what people are trying to do in social interactions generate these sort of non-linear environments where things can sort of fluctuate quite wildly. Think of a stock market crash that can be influenced by everyone trying to start to panic. And it's also a failure of appreciating the structural components of the system. So, the physical environment, the policy implications, and the network structure itself. So, what is the makeup of the network uh, that you belong to, the social structures, and the policy and socioeconomic structures? So, we really have to think of people who are acting within a system and upon a system. So, it's a system that constrains people, and it's people trying to work within that system and tra- change that system. And that makes it a really pro- uh, difficult problem. It makes it a wicked problem. Um, it makes it a complex problem. So what can we do? Um, there's a couple of different things that I, in my work, um, try to do, and there's some things that I think that we should really try and take away from this as well. One is I think we need interdisciplinary work. And by this I mean not just within psychologists, engaging with sociologists and economists, but people really reaching across, uh, collaborating between NGOs, policymakers and, crucially, stakeholders. Um, too much, I think, uh, of interventions are driven for good reasons and uh, kind intentions, but from on top, down onto people, without thinking about the people who are being subject, uh, subjugated uh, these interventions. So we really need, I think, to understand the stakeholders when they're coming to us, right? So I've been working on just two projects uh, as examples of this. One is environmental sustainability, where I've been looking at fisheries. And here we've been building these models to sort of simulate how people would react to uh, policy. Um, and here we try to work with biologists, economists, local NGOs who worked um, in the areas we we're interested in, fishers, so we went and talked to fishers about like, their experiences, what they thought about the environment, and all of this stuff. And that generates, in my mind, a much more holistic and also a humane sort of approach to how we can think about how people will respond to our behavioural interventions. I've also worked in information systems where, for instance, I've checked modelled the marketplace of ideas. This came about when I heard people in Silicon Valley talk about, like, we just need to, quote-unquote, connect people. And so I built a model where we tested that assumption. And uh, despite our best intentions and kind efforts to try and make it work, uh, we've actually found the opposite, that the larger we make the, made the network of connections, the fewer people ended up um, agreeing with each other. I can talk about that more later, but I think for the sake of time, I'll try and wrap it up by saying that what I really want to sort of instill is the idea that we are humble, um, that we don't just think that our discipline has the right way of thinking about human being, that we try to be innovative in the way that we engage with each other and talk to other people, not just within our silos. Because what we really want to avoid are these unintended consequences of interventions. That is the bane of any kind of intervention, and it is what we really need to avoid when we try to model the effect and impact of policy. So thank you very much. Um, Thank you, Jens. Uh, No small challenge to set us
0: as we we start off. Um, First, I find it very hard to be humble. I think many at the LSE (laughs) know. But just uh, take, you know... be able to grapple with complexity and be able to grapple with all these different aspects of of human minds. I'm going to probe you on a couple of more of those questions later. But first, it would be great just to hear, uh, Laura, your experiences of of trying to bring this kind of awareness to um, people in government and how things have gone.
2: Sure. Um, So when we talk about change, a lot of the times what we really are talking about is behavior change. And in my time of in government for the last eight years or so, I worked on many different projects related to Brexit, COVID, violence against women and girls, disinformation. And what they all have in common is that they are incredibly complex. And it's no surprise that the decision-making around it is also very complex. You need to understand what people are currently doing. You need to understand why they're doing it. You need to know what they should be doing instead. And then you need to find an intervention that doesn't backfire, that achieves that aim. And that, of course, is very complicated. And... What I found is that a lot of the times, government makes decisions that involve inaccurate assumptions about behavior. And I'll share with you my top three today of inaccurate assumptions of behavior of government decision making, and what I think the impacts are and why it makes change hard. So the first one, most encompassing, I think, is what uh, social psychologists uh, call the fundamental attribution error a tendency to overweigh personal characteristics when you're thinking about why someone behaves the way they do compared to situational factors. So think back to 2020 and it's March and you're going outside and you see a group of teenagers that are hanging out on the side of the street. Your likely judgment will be that maybe they don't know the rules or simply they don't care enough about the rules to follow them when you might ignore other things like maybe they are living in crowded living conditions and they're escaping uh, difficult family circumstances. Now, the impact of the fundamental attribution error in government decision-making is an over-reliance on communication. And what happens in the circumstance if you communicate, if you tell people the rules again, and there are actually other factors that drive their behavior, is that the behavior doesn't change. And then, you know, those of us who are parents know the pattern. We talk a little louder, and maybe we try to, you know, instill some emotions in the person. We try to, you know, use maybe fear or other things. And at best, it doesn't work, and at worst, it backfires, and we lose trust. So That was number one. Number two is uh, our kind of a set of assumptions that are plainly not grounded in evidence. Um, one of the, my, the one that I come across a lot or came across a lot is that of people panicking in disasters. Now, if, you, if you're a policymaker and you're handling a disaster, there is a really natural tendency to think, oh, my God, I need to handle this evoking panic and I need to calm people down when what we know from academic studies that you know, there wasn't even panic on the Titanic. Panic is not something that features as part of a human response to disasters. Much more is what we're seeing are really actually quite understandable behaviors like running, hiding, telling, just like government says, or actually helping behaviors. So if you are focusing on the calming messages, you're missing out on giving people information they need to make good decisions to change the situation and you're treating people as um, something to manage rather than an asset to help you solve the problem. And number three are the kind of assumptions that stem, and they're a little harder to spot to be fair, that come from kind of more political ideological beliefs such as meritocracy. I worked in the DWP as a lead behavioral scientist for many years, and that's where I came across some of these assumptions quite a lot. So imagine a single mother, she's unemployed and on universal credit. These kind of assumptions that have meritocracy underlying the mental model um, would think, okay, so with the right skills and the right will, this mother will be able to be employed. And then the solutions you're focusing on will be giving her the skills, telling her where to go, making sure her CV is in the right order, right? you are not staying curious and scientifically minded to understand that she'll be juggling multiple responsibilities, might you know deal with an uncertain job, mar- job market, but there might not be positions for her that allow her to be flexible, and above all, she's already doing quite a lot of hard work, but not in the way that you conceptualize hard work. She'll be making many decisions every day about finances to keep her children fed, frankly, and as part of that, she'll experience a cognitive load that is so heavy that her decision-making overall will not be as great as it could be. So we're failing to address the root causes through some of those more ideologically formed um, assumptions. Um, and I say all that, um, and I want to make sure that we are not collectively engaging in what I think is a more ironic fundamental attribution error, which is looking at all these people making these decisions in government and thinking, oh my god, they just don't know any better. Because the people that work there, they are highly skilled, they really mean well, they want the best, and they work incredibly hard. So. They are part of a system, and that's for us to recognize, that currently incentivizes certain behaviors, that are, portray, portrays risks in a certain way, that defines problems in a certain way, and, you know, that doesn't even allow for a more, like, appreciation of the complexity of problem-solving cross-departmental boundaries, it doesn't have a department a cross-departmental people finder, even. So um, I'll end with, um, I think, sometimes government makes decisions based on assumptions, um, that are inaccurate, and that is in order, and that is facilitated by the system. So, in order to make change a little easier for government, we need to rethink some of that.
0: Excellent, thank you. Um, one theme that I'm liking that almost cuts across the three points you made there was, in terms of. A, the importance of the environment and the importance of the surrounding context, but also the fact that that surrounding context is structured in ways that cer- suit certain interests more than others. So, yeah. so th- you know, the environment isn't just there pre-existing. The environment is created. It's something that's a society that's a result of, of, of ideologies. Yeah. Um, and so this, uh, this notion of the role of power um, and of how people in power or close to power can think about what it's like to not have power yeah. I think might be a nice segue over to Connor in terms of thinking right. about how... Um, how we can use the legislative tools to challenge power and your experiences yeah. of,
3: of working right. with people to try okay. to affect those changes. All right, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, the uh, the question, why is change so hard? So the assumption is it's hard. I'm going to run with that. Uh, and secondly, I'm told I'm here as a lawyer, so I'm going to tell you why change is so hard from a legal point of view. Is that okay? and I've got about five minutes. I'm going to keep an eye on my phone because I could wear on for quite a long time. Uh, I want you to think about three things. So people ask you in four hours tomorrow, what did I say? These are the three things. Constitutional obstacles to change, judicial obstacles to change, legislative obstacles to change, and the add-on is let's kill people to get change. Constitutional obstacles are immense, immense, Some constitutions, you're not allowed change, the German one. So affected were they by the war that they said, and we have a German to my right here, that basically you can't mess with dignity. Well, that freezes a lot of things, constrains government. And then some constitutions, like the Indian, you think you can change, you go along and change it. And then the courts come along and say... Those are not changes we allow. They're called unconstitutional amendments. So the judges say they're not allowed to do that because they're against the spirit of the Constitution. So these are quite big efforts at change which are stymied by constitutional barriers. One of the reasons for a long time I was opposed to a written constitution here was because they stymie you. They stymie you. And even if you have a mechanism of change... The change can be almost impossible. Look at the United States Constitution. You need to get the Congress thing, and then you need to get two-thirds of the states, so when they went for the Equal Rights Amendment, they couldn't get it through, because they have to persuade too many people. So, first thing, constitutions make things very difficult. Ah, but, second thing, judges are the answer. We can rely on judges. So if we get the judges we want, we can achieve change. There's a couple of problems with that. One is judges are usually quite reactionary. They grew up in a world which rewards them and they think, therefore, the world is great because they've succeeded. So the litany of change prevented by judges in constitutional situations around the world is immense. Uh, who stopped uh, regarding black people as equal in America in the 1850s? The courts. Who said separate but equal is fine? The courts. Who in this country said that women cannot vote and it took parliament to overturn it? The courts. So we need to be careful of accepting courts. We do need to be careful. They scupper FDR in America's effort to change. Oh, but maybe the courts can be dramatically progressive. Now and again, they can. Now and again, they can. They were dramatically progressive in a case called Roe versus. Wade, which read into the British- American Constitution this kind of right to choose, as we call it today, and it's been eventually set aside by judicial reaction. So even wins are not guaranteed because change can muster opposition. So courts are not the answer, nor are constitutions. What about Stella's bunch, the legislator? Well, we're going to hear from the legislator. It's really, really tricky. It's really tricky. Sometimes legislators can do clever things, like the Human Rights Act. Mr. Blair won, passed the Human Rights Act, Human Rights Act says, judges, make us do nice things, make us do nice things. Twist our words to make us do nice things. Well, it's just about survived. People don't like it because it produces change. And then, why do legislators use crises? Because it's a way to achieve change. So if you have a crisis, we have an interesting crisis. I'm sure Stella will talk about it, about a monstrous sentence in court yesterday. And how do you try and use indignation and package it and turn it into something which lasts long enough to achieve change? So we, in legislation, try to do that. And you can do it for progressive as well as reactionary reasons. But it's tricky. We'll hear from the legislator. Final point. If the constitutions don't work and if the judges are not playing ball, and if the legislature is too complicated, let's kill a few people. Or if we don't kill a few people, let's hold up all the roads. Let's (laughs) climb onto gantries and dangle. In other words, the temptation of terrorism and direct action. Guess what? You need to be very careful. If you go around the place killing people, you need to make sure that you have a community that will support you even when you kill people. That is very tricky to pull off. It's very tricky to pull up. And what happens is that people don't listen to your message because they hate the way you tell them. Very tricky. Even direct action. So far as I know, there's been a pullback from the more direct of the direct action because I think there's an understanding that it alienates more than it communicates. So how do you achieve change? Stella, it's not just because you're an LSE graduate. Hard work, focused interventions, and occasional opportunistic use of crises to achieve change. That's me.
0: Brilliant. I don't think we need a segue. I think I'm just going to let uh, Stella take it from there. <laughs> um, also, zooming in from Westminster, I should say, due to a vote and did want to be here tonight, but we really appreciate getting you on multiple screens in the room <laughs> instead. Yes,
4: apologies. The hours of Parliament mitigate against many things, including Connor's kill list, I'm afraid to say, (laughs) because as Oscar Wilde taught us the problem with socialism, it just takes too many evenings, so too much of my time is spent sat around not uh, coming up with this. Um, I guess I'm here as a poacher-turned-gamekeeper, possibly pheasant in all of this, having studied both psychology Um, I think, Laura, Laura, in fact, my first supervisor at university was David Halpin. So he's basically to blame for all of this. I think we can all agree on that. Um, And uh, now serving in Parliament. And and I guess you would expect of me as a parliamentarian, therefore, um, to, to be contrary and to say that, actually, I don't think change is hard. I think what is hard is breaking out of kind of what Jens was talking about which is the traditional systemic way of doing things but one of the the lessons that I have learned in applying some of the the research that I did uh, in my own work on psychology was that if you are prepared to do things differently you can get a different result essentially Einstein was right let me just give you some examples of what I mean um Laura you talked there about the fundamental attribution area actually one of the lessons that I've reflected on most as a politician is cognitive polyphasia, which was very much part of the social representations work that I did. Essentially, that people can hold conflicting views at the same time, completely happily and and, and in the same way do so. So people will tell you that they want both well-funded public services and low taxes, and there is not a conflict for them. There is only different environments in which those views come to the fore. So if you want change to happen, it's not that you have to change people's minds so much as that you have to reach into the part of their mind where that thing that you share a common concern about becomes the bigger, more important issue to them. In order to do that, you have to do what is very difficult to do as a politician, which is to recognize that you are not powerful. Uh, In my job, I get to replicate Tony Soprano in many different ways. So people treat me as if I'm a mafia don come to Stella and she'll sort it out. I have very little power. The only power I have, especially as an opposition backbench MP, is if there is a vote on the floor of the house and I get to walk into a yes or no. And nine times out of 10, those yeses no are not the question that I would have liked to have asked. Little wonder that most of your job as a politician is often reduced to being a prop in a photo. People want you to come to a meeting to say that you were there so they can take a picture increasingly now so they can put it on social media and say that power was in the room. It was not. The question in making change happen is understanding who does have power over the issue or cause that you have concern about, and then utilising that. But if you do that and you recognise and respect other people's power, and I think that goes so powerfully to your point, Laura, about the public. When we treat the public as toddlers who don't have any power, we shouldn't be surprised when they throw their toys out of the pram. If you treat the public as co-creators of the change that you are seeking to make happen, extraordinary things can happen. That means building alliances around the things that you want to see happen and recognizing that there are multiple sources of power of which you are not one as a legislator. So many of the campaigns and issues and changes that I've had the privilege to work on have not been my idea, nor have they been my power. They have been collective power. Let me give you an example of that. Um, Ending the career of Wonga and bringing in legislation to cap the cost of high cost credit in this country was a culmination of many different organisations and many different um, actors, including the banks themselves, who recognised when we talked to them about what business they were losing, that they had power to say, well, we want to see regulation. Uh, People like Martin Lewis, famous people who had an interest in finance. And then people within local communities, particularly working in credit unions, saying we can see the impact of high-cost loans. Those loans where you used to think the decimal point had been accidentally left off. It hadn't been. Building those alliances allowed people to see that they had the power to do something about something they recognised was a challenge, not just in their community, but in the country, and made change impossible to ignore. But that is my sort of second point in all of this, is very often people talk about change as being hard because they're asking for something too small. If you ask for something big, the small things come as part of people trying to, especially those people in power, trying to manage the backlash. Uh, Connor talked briefly there about um, abortion. We've had this horrific case this week. Um, It is giving me fantastic pleasure, I will tell you, Connor, that the argument I'm making with the government now as to why they should not only use the royal prerogative of mercy to free the woman who's been imprisoned in this country for having an abortion under ancient legislation, but also to finally ensure that every woman in the United Kingdom has a legal right to an abortion, because currently right now she doesn't, is the change we made in Northern Ireland. And that change we made in Northern Ireland, where women do have the most progressive abortion legislation in the entirety of the UK, only came about because we demanded in that community the thing that seemed the most impossible. We weren't prepared to be accept to be fobbed off, frankly, with the idea that the government would pay the airfare of women from Belfast coming to Birmingham to have abortion. <coughs> Very often, change doesn't happen because people accept the small and ask for the small when the big is what sets the context of why that change needs to happen. I would say the same thing on making misogyny a hate crime. And five years ago, we were laughed out of town that this was somehow about criminalising wolf whistling. By refusing to accept that somehow violence against women was not being seen as a priority, was, was seen as a priority by this government and by legislators, we have shifted the conversation about what is possible and what should be happening to the fact that legislation has now come in, it's going through the House of Lords at this point in time. Again, it gives me great pleasure that it is white men of a certain age who are arguing about the importance of recognizing misogyny as contributing towards driving crimes against women. That came about because that coalition of organizations and actors who were asked to use the power that they had recognized that they could make something different and it made them feel empowered. It made them feel co-creators of that change. And I guess that leads to my final point here, which is I am not, I chose not to go into academia and I definitely chose not to go into the law, corner. so you can be reassured on that because very few <laughs> of us here are legally trained and I think it shows. It allows us to do the messy because change is messy and change is perpetual. Martin Luther King was wrong. Martin Luther King said the moral arc of the universe bends towards progress. It doesn't unless you continue to fight for it to do so. And as we've seen with Roe versus Wade, it can go backwards as well as forwards, in that process, being able to refuse to accept the systemic charges and being able to upend the traditions that Jens was talking about, is in itself being a change maker. Being able to be messy and not be confined is about that that cognitive polyphasia, is about appealing to somewhere in people's minds and hearts that something different could be done. Because frankly, the worst thing for any politician is to be asked to do something, we spend all our time being asked to be Tony Soprano and be a prop in a photo, it's a very nice comfortable life. Being asked to do something, being asked to do things differently, and being challenged to find the other powerful people in the room to help make sure that that happens, well that is quite a task. But if the alternative is that actually the big conspiracy theory is right, and that there isn't, sorry, there isn't a big conspiracy theory. That are actually all those Netflix programs that show us that there are deeply powerful people out there working out what changes are allowed and that somehow it's part of a big cabal. The alternative is that there are lots of us in all different political persuasions, as Laura says, trying to do our best and not really knowing what to do next. Well, that's probably the biggest change of all for people is the loss of confidence that your politicians ever knew what they were doing, the bastards. Whereas the reality now is that we can make change happen if we are prepared to seed the idea that it's not up to us individually, the 650 of us in the place that looks like Hogwarts gone wrong, up to a country to choose to fight for the kind of future it wants for everyone. I know that hope is pretty thin on the ground in our politics right now. We've not covered ourselves in glory. But I wouldn't be sat here in all these late nights and not choosing Connor's alternative to have that hit list of people if I didn't think change was possible. So I guess I sit here today to offer you the counterbalance that change isn't hard. It's just bloody hard work. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you.
0: All right, so I mean, very, very different perspectives coming forward. I think the most obvious contrast here in in the different ways we propose this question is in terms of thinking about top down versus bottom up. Um, You know, the academic is trying to understand the system so that we can use the better information, so that it also changes the system, right, and the, and the policymaker. Whereas Connor and Stella have been talking more about the bottom up and, and about um, p- change coming from below. Um, is, are, are they just two different roles in society, two different functions, or do you think that you can, you know, that, that some of your work is relevant to the kind of struggles Connor's talking about, or, or that maybe that you know, government behavioural insights should think about change completely differently, that it shouldn't be seen as something that
1: government decides people should be doing. If I can take a first crack at it, um, I would say that I think it's very complementary. Um, I think in, in my sort of thinking on, on these sort of aspects on change, is a combination of bottom-up and top-down. Um, I'll give you an example um, as a concrete thing, right? Misinformation um, is a problem um, and hate speech online. How does that spread? Um, it's not a, a conscious act of someone who just designs a recommender system and that spreads it top-down, like, it's not just a policy that comes from, uh, like, uh, allowing people to contribute bottom-up, it's a messy, like, um, um, what do you call it, Um, combination, uh, if you will, of the interplay between individual people who are trying to do something within a system that has been designed by people in power, to some extent, but those people in power, for instance, Elon Musk with Twitter doesn't have absolute power, right? Like, people can also bottom up say, like, well, we don't want to use that platform anymore, we're going to go to another platform. Um, And that's going to put pressures, financial pressures, on a particular um, tech person, right? Similarly, um, like, politicians can't just have top down influence because, like, people will, again, like, circumvent those policies if they see them unfit to what their lives are about. Like, the examples that I tried to sort of give in the beginning are like reasonable approximates of top-down policy where people have found bottom-up uh, ways to circumvent them. Um, like there's countless of examples of this. Uh, like to give another one is um, in, uh, in uh, uh, 1905, I think it was, um, the French uh, rulers of uh, Vietnam paid for anyone who could deliver, deliver a rat tail um, because they had a, a population of rats. Um, And what do people do? People want to make money, people want to, like, live. Um, So they started breeding rats, right? Um, And then (laughs) cut off the tails, and a lot of uh, tailless rats were left uh, to roam the sewers of uh, Hanoi, right? So this is neither, I think, a competition between bottom-up and top-down, but rather it's how that system emerges as a dynamic thing over time in the interplay between what people are doing in that structure. So there's power and sort of uh, adaptation within that system. And that's all political, financial, psychological, and, and what have you.
0: Great, thank you. I mean, as I, I, I'd love to hear what you've got to say, Laura. I was, I was particularly wondering, should the government be creating spaces then for people to talk about what they want or how, why they do the things they do?
2: Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so I think I don't see these two approaches in conflict either, and I think, in fact, like a well-functioning System would incorporate both. Um, The way I kind of usually conceptualize a policymaking cycle is, you know, ministers, they set aims, they set goals, and then government responds by creating systems, processes, and so on, uh, and uh, government designs. And then people respond in the real world. They respond to how these systems were created, and that leads then to the aims that ministers originally set, either corresponding or not corresponding to how people actually behave on the ground. And for me, government designing in the middle is the box we should really look at if we're trying to understand, if we're trying to make sense of these two bottom up and top down. Um, assumptions here because how people respond once they actually responded to our policy is actually too late we want to understand user needs as part of the government decision making process in order to get the user needs to the decision making process we need to be able to talk to people and I think actually government does that quite a lot we talk a lot to people but rather than just talking to people we also need to analyse what actually the factors are that are currently driving their behaviours and some of them like cognitive load is what we mentioned they are not very visible we can't just hear what people have to say and we can't just hear what they want but nevertheless, sometimes there are tensions. Sometimes people want something and there's intention with a kind of a top-time aim that was set. And I think for me, then the importance is how we communicate that and how do we respond to that kind of tension, particularly from a government design perspective. And unfortunately, that tension is a lot of the times where trust is eroded because we aren't entirely honest with that tension actually existing in the first place um, because we are you know, framing government needs as user needs and people can kind of see through that. Um, so for me, holding the tension is part of what government decision-making is about, this top-down and, and bottom-up tension, really, and ensuring that we're kind of maximizing for both aims and then are transparent about what the boundaries are around it.
0: Thoughts from Conor or Stella in terms of um, whether we can work together on on, um, on on integrating both top-down and bottom-up? I suppose a more uh, controversial way of seeing it would be to say, okay, what, what Jens and Laura are saying so far, what government is willing to... Uh, allow for is that we will people can be part of the conversation in terms of providing us information about why they're doing what they're doing, um, in terms of us helping us better and more successfully advance our agenda. But the agenda is something that, w- that we set, the experts, no? I mean, wh- where do we get the agenda from? Um, and I, th- I feel like that's something that Stella and Connor might... Maybe I should say something
3: yeah. very, very quickly on this. Uh, I think if you examine the top-down thing, in the pre-democratic era the top was the top, and the bottom, what were they? They were a mob. So they used to mobilise angrily in the 18th century and wreak havoc. So the way they spoke collectively and argued for change was outwit the system completely. So they were the bottom invading the top. And then for quite a longish period, in what we think of as our kind of democratic golden age, but it wasn't really democratic, but it was much better, the bottom organised and took a kind of power So the bottom organized as a labor movement and used union power to achieve equality and then formed a political party in most countries, most famously in the United Kingdom and England. And they represented the bottom and the bottom seized a kind of power. And then the petrified top conceded social democracy because they were petrified of what had happened in Russia. So there was a period of time when the top bottom thing didn't work and the bottom ran the top, as it were. That has changed. There's new levels of estrangement, which I don't understand, but you people are much closer to understanding. And these have forsaken traditional commitments to class and even gender, and so people are lost. And so the bottom doesn't believe they have any capacity to be part of the top, and they wander around kind of aimless and angry. Um. Stella, did you ever? I want to probe a, a
0: question on yes. what Connor's just said, but but an initial reaction to the question, and then up. Yeah,
4: one of the biggest mistakes made in the last century of governance is people read Robert Putnam and Bowling Alone, and I can say that because one of my PhD supervisors was Ray Parle. And the whole point problem with Bowling Alone is people weren't bowling alone; they were bowling with friends and family. Why does that matter? Because one of the things that governments of all colours have always got wrong is how to work with the public and as politicians we end up being in the middle of that. Um, we think that it's through traditional organisations and entities, churches, yeah I've, I've lost count of the number of times whether at a local or a national level I've been asked to find community representatives who are often self-appointed and that includes politicians, the way political parties work. We've failed to recognise how the British public interact with each other, whether it's online, offline, informally or formally. Um, One of the biggest challenges to me as both a Labour and cooperative MP, so I come from the community organising background of the the Labour Party, is that in the pandemic, 1000s and 1000s of cooperatives were set up. And government, whether local or national has systematically failed to engage in it. What were they? WhatsApp groups, People set up WhatsApp groups to be able to interact, plan and organise change in their local communities in response to a pandemic. Many of those WhatsApp groups have continued on, but government and the way in which it engages with people has systematically failed to understand that that is a forum for people. And it's a very meaningful forum because it starts with something that's very close to people's hearts, their local community, who they are, who lives next door to them, who might be similarly affected. And part of the challenge is we have spent all this time decrying the loss of social capital and dislocation. How do we get people to go to a public meeting because that's what social capital looks like and fail to recognize people are organizing and they are mobilizing themselves. One of the most frightening things as a local MP right now is that every single school visit I do, the children talk to me about Andrew Tate. They are sharing his material. They are inspired by him. They are remaking his material. And it's a common theme across every conversation that we're having. And that is not a traditional network. It's an incredibly powerful one. And it's having an incredibly powerful impact on our communities, particularly on our young people. And the ways in which we do consultation, the ways in which we do engagement, presume that the public are going to engage and consult in ways that, frankly, even in the 1950s weren't particularly empowering or engaging for people. They were hierarchical. And I put the blame fairly and squarely. And in fact, the one time I met him, I said this to him on Robert Putnam and bowling alone because every government and every government department read that book and thought, aha, that's how we find the public. It isn't. The challenge for all of us who want to make change happen is to understand where those networks are being created and to be part of them, not to try and direct them, to be be part of them. And that's really, really hard because you've got to have the legitimacy and the humbleness of being willing to do things in a different, more messy way. And I have to admit, I've systematically failed to encourage my local authority to think about those ways, let alone the government departments that I've worked with. And we are seeing the results because whether it was the Scottish referendum, Brexit, the post-Brexit Trumpian politics that we now have, none of that is being done in these traditional formats for how you organise and mobilise. And that's not about being online because it's happening offline too. It's all about those personal relationships that people can build, often in spite of formal institutions rather than because of them. But there is no reason if we were to reorganise the way in which we collectively work together, we couldn't do that for good in our country. We just choose not to because we think, well, if people aren't joining a trade union, there must be no community organising going on here at all. It's just not the case. Thank you. Jens.
0: Yeah, it
1: was just... On two sort of um, similar points, actually, I I agree with uh, Stella when she talks about these emerging communities as well. So one is, like, you asked, like, do we as academics or politicians or whatever come in and say, like, this is the agenda? And I think that's why I mentioned in my opening sort of talk or whatever how important I think it is that we are interdisciplinary and, like, multi-perspective. I wasn't just thinking about, like, within academia, but, like, engagement with stakeholders. I'll give you a concrete example Legislation on fisheries in California um, was more successful after they included the uh, fishers as part of the decision-making and agenda-setting process. There was higher uh, cooperation and higher compliance with uh, legislation uh, when it came out of a process where legislators talked to people and said, "Like, well, what do you need? What do you want? Like, uh, how, how does this like, happen to, in your day-to-day life? Right? And to Stella's point on like, these organizing networks, as someone who studies like, dynamic systems, I think that is an absolutely key bit uh, on how people form their beliefs in these networks and how they structure those networks organically. Um, I've shared um, your uh, concern about Andrew Tate. Uh, I think that's a uh, uh, my my worry is that like uh, once he is gone um, by hook or by crook, uh, someone else will come in and fill that vacuum um, because I think it speaks to something again that I'm trying to sort of convey is that the emergence of a feature on a system like Andrew Tate or someone like it comes from a confluence of what individuals are trying to do within it, how the recommender systems are pushing certain types of content that is then consumed by people who talk with each other offline or online at school or whatever, start becoming more radicalised on how they see people, start using terms like escaping the matrix uh, when they are being confronted with... uh, uh, like. Education around uh, sort of misogynian Um and all of a sudden, then they splinter off. And even if you remove, like I said, also you chop the head off a uh, Hydra and three more grow right. And mm-hmm. uh, like even if you remove that sort of central focus, like something sort of fills that vacuum right because like complex systems abhor a vacuum.
0: And it seems that very much resonates with what Laura was saying in terms of you just can't understand behaviour outside of the context in which it's taking place or, or what Stella was saying in terms of highlighting those contexts in which particular concerns become relevant. But I just wanted to lean into that, maybe the Andrew Tate example or maybe just what you were saying, Connor, about um, people wandering aimlessly. I mean, there is an extent to which, um, uh, to the extent that, let's say, um, stall, maybe it's because of stalling uh, progressive agendas, uh, maybe it's because of a range of kind of um, factors that have led to social and economic marginalization, um, there are movements towards change from disenfranchised people um, that might be seen as very negative and very kind of backward looking in terms of the causes of, let's say, inclusion or equality. Um, and hasn't it been um, constitutions, courts, um, politicians, you know, kind of d- dual cameral, bicameral systems that, that have saved um, the good aspects of democracy or that have been helpful in terms of? Um, stopping negative change? I mean, how do we feel about destructive change and then about the importance of some of these
3: barriers? it's true. I I, I only had seven minutes, and I I need to just sort of show off a bit. So I exaggerated. (laughs) I exaggerated. There is no doubt. I mean, Stella's brilliant achievements in Northern Ireland were the result of a case. And so there was a Supreme Court case, and then it didn't go as well as it could, but it created space, correct me if I'm wrong, Stella, for further political action and so on. So there's a synergy at its best between what is called strategic litigation and political participation. And to get it right is a real challenge. But if you get it right, you can actually build a progressive community, which is across the law and politics, which produces successful outcomes. And a shout out for the little world in which I partly occupy, which is international human rights because it's not all about winning cases in the European Court of Human Rights. It's also about a structure of right solidarity. So groups who identify their needs as in rights terms find a handle on which to hang their version of what's important and they find other people. And so there are great ways in which, and I'm really persuaded by international human rights as a mechanism of organization, not just zero sum litigious wins.
0: Thank you. Um, So maybe one way of, um, oh, sorry, Stella, yeah. Were you gonna? Yeah, well, I was just,
4: I mean, actually kind of what it comes to and what we did in Northern Ireland was not one single thing. I mean, there were lots of grassroots activists. What we did was that point about stopping saying, one person is powerful. I mean, in that instance, there was a presumption that the power of the political representatives was absolute. And therefore, somebody like me coming in and going, well, sorry, the DUP don't speak for everyone, do they? So actually, who else is trying to speak here? It was then working with lawyers, particularly people we'd met through the repeal campaign in Ireland itself. And Absolutely, there were legal cases, but we followed them up with then questions in Parliament and kind of grassroots action and saying all along, everybody has power in this instance. And the, the most radical thing that I would say that, as I say, I do is to say, look, I, I'm your worst nightmare as your MP because I'm going to get you involved. But that's how I know things change is to stop being the most powerful person in the room. I'll, like I say, we're we're so set up to be that. And then to say, well, you've got power to make something happen. So what is the something? And I think that goes to your point about destructive change, because, yeah, what we're seeing right now is a lot of people using direct action to be destructive without seeking change at the same time. What do I mean by that? One of the most frustrating things I say as somebody who's tried to deal a lot with um, Extinction Rebellion, I'm somebody who believes passionately we've got a climate crisis, we've got to act, is when you say to them, "Well, what, what do you want to happen? And they say, well, we, we've got to deal with the climate crisis. You say, yes, I agree with you. So what does that look like? What are the things we could do? How do we reduce emissions? Oh, that's, that won't do. None of it's good enough. And you're left with nothing that is change. you're only left with the destruction and i i can see how people have got to the point where they think that getting up on a snooker table and throwing orange paint is somehow a powerful act but it's impotent if it doesn't connect to a change and there isn't a change behind what they're saying and one of the frustrations that people like me have had is saying well hang on a minute who are the different actors in this what what you know you want this big thing but what are the small things that are going to take us toward that you know could we build towards that And getting the knockback that it's too impure. So the destructiveness comes from being unwilling to look at anything at all, except one thing. And of course, as soon as people say no to that one thing, it's like, well, that's it, nothing else is ever going to change. And I would actually argue that is as destructive as I mean, I sit here, I'm the chair of the Labour Movement for Europe. So you can imagine what my view of Brexit was. Brexit equally fed off this idea that you know destruction in and of itself could only be a good thing because change wasn't happening. Now those of us who care passionately about internationalism should hold our hands up and say we failed to build that alliance of people who recognize the value of international cooperation and how you can and to reform the way in which those international institutions brought people on that this thing about treating people like toddlers and wondering why they throw their toys out of the pram. But that destructive ethos has been unleashed within British politics. And frankly, I would argue that many of us who believe that change is possible have not been loud enough in showing the alternative path of all that bloody hard work and collaboration and not being too big and important in the room that you're the only person who can make a decision to make an alternative thing happen. So the destructiveness comes from the way in which we respond to the system rather than the system itself. But but frankly, I believe we only have ourselves to blame. And I will often say that the problem isn't the individual issues, it's the politicians in this, because we haven't shown that leadership, that if you put the effort in, it is worthwhile. And I think you're seeing the results of that now. But I don't do my job. And often I have full frank and free conversations with people like the Just Stop Oil and the Extinction Rebellion people about it's not that just you've lost people is that I don't know what you want to achieve. And if I don't know what you want to achieve, I can't see if it's feasible or not. So I think maybe maybe what
0: it's been really great because I think we, the, the pushback, maybe on my question about saying, you know, well, is it maybe that it's good to have institutional barriers to change because of destructive social movements, is to say, well, maybe we should think about there, why there are destructive social movements because there haven't been uh, creation of spaces for people to voice what they want and the creations of maybe deliberative democracy or kind of um, genuine outreach. I just want to pose one last thing before we open for questions is um, when you were talking there, Stella, about um, what people want to achieve, um, and when you were talking, about um you know information for example or or the beliefs that people have do we have a limited view of what people are here um, in terms of is it just information, is it just the cognitive side or is it just kind of what we want to achieve in terms of goals? What about feelings? I mean psychology has been very guilty of leaving out feelings and what about relationships and people as relational beings? I know that um, social representations tradition is much better at that so I just wonder does anyone have thoughts about thinking beyond people as kind of uh, decision makers or as trying to achieve particular goals as opposed to um, as relational beings or as um, expressing feelings, emotions? I
2: can start with something controversial. Um, (laughs) A lot of the time, I think, we're talking about feelings in government as well, of course, right? And a lot of the time people say, oh, it would just help if we all had more empathy. And I don't believe in that. (laughs) And that's the controversial bit. I think empathy is great for motivating you. Empathy is not necessarily great for actually acting on whatever the problem was. I think what we're here talking about, and this is through social listening, through actually understanding the what like through the WhatsApp groups or what else other data comes in, is perspective taking. And we need to take these kind of perspectives in order to understand, in order to diagnose the problems and in order to design systems that actually achieve the aims for the people, for the needs that they have, um, in ways that they don't backfire. And I think this perspective taking is cognitively difficult if you are not part of the same social identity, I think when it came to Brexit, when it came to COVID and conspiracy theories and whatnot, there was this kind of engagement with the you know, like WhatsApp groups to an extent. There was the looking at these groups, joining them, Telegram. I mean, I myself have been you know, part of that. Um, and I think a lot of the time you feed this data back and it doesn't get interpreted in a way that is actually meaningful because we are failing to share the same social identities with these people and therefore fail to really fully take the perspectives. And then it becomes something that we judge and it backfires internally. You call people irrational and then you create this big distance between them and us and you end up treating them again like children. So yeah, I think that's kind of... Any other reactions?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll echo that to some extent. Um, like. I think one of the dangers I sometimes see in, in academic writing and, and like the way that we think about people is that we impose our norms onto them. And then if they don't adhere to those norms, those like patterns of behaviour, we describe that as irrational or biased or a heuristic or something. Um, but I don't see that necessarily the big disassociation between like the cognitive side of beliefs and one's emotions and social relations and stuff. So, for instance, in the environmental work that I've been doing, Um, I went uh, and I lived in Indonesia for a month and just talked to fishers about like their families, their lives, what are are they doing on a day-to-day basis Um, and try to understand that element of that decision making. And of course like part of that behavior is driven by where do they think the fish are? Um, Like that's a belief, right? It's uh, defined by what do they know about the price? Also a belief. But it's also defined by like uh, what would my neighbors think if I fished on where he normally fishes or she normally fishes. Um, And that's a very relational consideration, right? Like, it's something that you you don't want to be, like, the bad guy in the village. Uh, Like, I went to, like, a small island at one point where 400 people live there, um, and it's, like, a 24-hour boat uh, trip to get to this island, right? Um, So, in other words, you're you're pretty much stuck there uh, with uh, those 400 people. If you become, like the so-and-so of the village, uh, like, you're not going to have a very fun life. Um, so, like, their decision-making and their, the way they engaged with, like, behavior on a day-to-day basis was intentionally, uh, like, intensely emotional but cognitive, mm. relational but, like, individual, right? Mm. And I think in trying to have multiple perspectives on qualitative interviews, on data-driven um, sort of insights, like, that's where I think we can start building better appreciations of, like, well, what drove that decision, right? Um, mm-hmm. So that, for me, is, like, a really important sort of confluence or, like, combination of the emotional, the relational with the cognitive and the, and the decision-making.
0: And, and fundamentally, it all makes sense in some way as opposed to yeah, the yeah. irrational or the... Well, again, like, the...
1: some of these behaviours, I will really stress this, in the fisheries literature was described in journals and academic peer-reviewed journals as irrational, right? Um, and it isn't. Like, if you, if you forego profit... Uh, to not be the the villain of, like, a 400-person village. Like, that is perfectly rational, right? Like, it's a perfectly reasonable behaviour if you understand the context in which that takes place.
0: And one thing I was thinking when you talked about the intervention that backfired um, in terms of the one in Turkey... Um, was to do with, well, maybe people were behaving in a sustainable way because of the relational frame that was there. And when the relational frame switches and it becomes a bit incentivising, then maybe it brings out a different side of our humanity. But we could go on for ages. Um, I would love to hear from you all. I'm actually going to start with questions online, if that's OK. Um, um, I think um, Rebecca's got some teed up. We'll take one at a time, yeah? Great. And then um, get your questions ready, those in the room, and I'll uh, try and keep... Hi.
4: I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. This is a question from Chris Österreich. How do we get broader acceptance of the need for systems thinking in dealing with complex challenges? Well, what do you think? Is that for me? (laughs) Um,
1: So I think... So one of the things that I'm really um, uh, faced with as a challenge when I try to sort of convey these ideas of complexity, because, like, I typically start lectures for students and uh, for for people when I I talk to this. uh, I have a slide that says, it's not complicated, it's complex. And that seems like the, the most naff sort of thing to say, right? Like it's such an academic thing to say um, that it's not complicated, it's complex because it's a technical difference. And I think there's a barrier to conveying why is a complex problem complex with all these sort of confluence of interactions and how the system emerges over time. Because in a complex system, you can't just change like one lever and then see it linearly uh, like, like analytically sort of uh, run through you have to sort of simulate the whole system over and over again and that's a really complicated sort of like hard thing to convey sort of mathematically and convey conceptually and stuff like this so I think even just having these types of conversations where we're trying to just sit down and in sort of more common sense ways just talk about like well of course it's really complex like again I'll go back to the hate speech stuff right like mm. if someone searches online for uh, like a teenager, like, why don't girls want to talk to me or something, right? And then they're, they're, they get some content by Ben Shapiro or whatever, and then, like, all of a sudden they talk about it with their mates, and then, like, it sort of goes down this rabbit hole, right, of recommender systems, of all this, like, we kind of know this, right? Like, we know that this is a problem, and we can't just go in and say, like, well, let's change the recommender system because you haven't changed the system, right? Like, you haven't changed what goes on in that system, like, the motivations and all of this stuff. So I think just sitting down with people and getting them to talk through real life problems, like you quickly sort of realize that like most of our problems that we're trying to deal with it, you know, here at LSE and uh, like it elsewhere are complex, they're not complicated. Uh, and that's, that's I think one way of trying to convey it uh, through examples.
0: Great, I'm gonna move on to the next question actually. If that's okay. yep.
4: A question from Amal. Um, How reliable are the different employees, unions and professional syndicates in promoting change and what can be done to reinforce their role?
0: Okay, it seems a little bit oriented towards uh, the politician. (laughs) Did you catch that question?
4: (coughs) Yeah, so um, broadcast is not engagement. And one of the big challenges made by lots of organisations and lots of politicians, it's like... I cringe when I see my colleagues write a tweet with their initials at the end of it. Because if you want to actually have people advocate for what you're trying to do or get that feedback, then you have to be an equal partner and setting yourself apart. So you are so busy that you couldn't possibly use Twitter like they do, or you broadcast into their WhatsApp groups, but you don't engage. And I spend a lot of my time in local Facebook groups, talking to people and in, and debating and arguing things with them. Because I'm a local resident too. And that's the biggest message that they get out of that. And I probably spend far too much time lecturing my staff about Clifford Gibbs, because in listening to all the things that people are saying, and a lot of the conversations in government, it's like we expect people in any organisation, whether an employer's trade union, whether the government are somehow the scientists, remote, distinct, coming to view the tribe. Actually, we all bring our own values, our own expectations, our own feelings and emotions to how we interpret the information and whether we are engaging with people and genuinely sharing something of ourselves and who they are and and understanding where they're coming from. And Clifford Goertz taught us about the difference between thick and thin information. If you spend time with people, you can increase your knowledge and understanding of where they're coming from. So Jen's talking about the fishermen, for example, and understanding what might be motivating them. But even that in itself just tells you where you've got to not where you want to get to. If you actually want things to change, we have to stop broadcasting at people and genuinely be willing to engage with them. And that includes giving up power, even the pretense that you have power, and starting to ask for shared outcomes that's really, really hard. Because we've all been told whether we're an academic or a politician, or a senior leader in government, that we have a series of responsibilities to deliver. I mean, I hate the word deliverable alongside strategy, anybody who comes to me saying they want to talk to me about strategy, my inner eyeballs roll substantially, because actually what those words imbue is a barrier to building those relationships and having that honest and authentic conversation in which you might disagree, But you'll learn something and you'll learn engagement from people and which you have to be honest that you are not a neutral participant none of us in this room are neutral in the networks that we work in and when you remove that idea that somehow you must be that you must be this distant impartial actor transmitting important information to people so they can make the right decision and looking for trusted voices who understand why that's their role many more interesting exciting but ultimately messy things can happen. Government is always going to be shouting into the wind and failing against the tide in the same way that any major organisation will be, if it keeps trying to control the conversation and remain at a distance and broadcast rather than engage, because it will always be thinking about itself, not what's happening. And that's how we miss things like the growth of Andrew Tate. It's why we missed the anger and discontent in the British public that led to Brexit. It's why during the pandemic so many people felt dislocated and started organising themselves. It's a real challenge for all of us to stop trying to be something we're not and just try to be who we are and go from there. But the future of collective change in this country, the future of trusted voices will be about being authentic and not trying to be always cosplaying a particular role, but understanding the information and those relationships and what that's coming back to and the thickness of your appreciation of the environment in which you're trying to operate in that's how you change it and you change yourself
0: from now um okay i can see we have a number of questions at the back um i'll start uh, with the person in the pink shirt here and um, then and um, person in the black top and then one at the back came earlier
3: good evening i wanted to build up on this earlier question about the top-bottom difference. I want to ask what is the role of technology in connecting people because I think you mentioned a lot about the sort of YouTube personalities that are well known, Uh, you know, most modern areas of life are currently, you know, they're all in the social media platforms from LinkedIn to Tinder to Facebook, whatever it is, everything now is very sort of working through technology. And my question is, to what degree do you think that's good? And perhaps if any of you could comment on the role of AI, given how everyone is obsessed with it now. So yeah, thank you.
0: I'm going to orient that one towards you, Laura, who um, was thinking about AI earlier.
2: <laughs> yes, um, I think, if it's OK, I'll leave you on the role of uh, kind of social media, if that's all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I can answer quickly uh, on the role of AI, specifically with regards to kind of government decision-making processes. Um, um, we talked a lot about complexity, about different systems, and the fact that when we're trying to solve problems, really we're solving them as part of uh, bigger systems. And I think in government, often we have, you know, we have distinct departments and distinct policy aims, and we're seeing them as like little pockets of, of different problems that we're trying to, you know, make progress against. And and the reality is, to try and make links between these different areas can be really tricky, and in fact, sometimes random. You know, you happen to be the person in the room that spots a link. For me, I'm really excited about the role of AI in plugging that particular gap, because generative models, you know, would be potentially able to understand how different areas that are on paper unrelated link together via, you know, linguistic properties and closeness, and assess the strength of these links that can then be fed back to decision makers to understand where they have missed parts of the system that they could actually otherwise connect. And I think similarly, um, when it comes to all of this social listening, I know this will go against what Stella has just said with regards to kind of actually being part of the conversation, but given the fact that we are currently also being drowned in data to analyse, um, I think the role of some of these models can actually be to help distill, understand emerging narratives that we otherwise might miss due to random chance.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, just briefly on the social media, like I don't think it's neither like good or bad, uh, like it just fundamentally changes how we conceptualize how information can travel. So like throughout human history, like the proliferation of the written word has become increasingly sort of like big, right? Like you go from like stone tablets and then like to the Gutenberg press and uh, like on and on we go, right? Like so it increases the the megaphone like to the radio as well as to the uh, television. So, but all of those always had, to some degree, like power structures, right? Like, you would have to go through a monk uh, to get, like, a book written in uh, 800 and whatever, right? Um, you would have to go through um, an editorial team to get on BBC Radio 1. You still have to. But now, of course, we have the addition to this information system with the bottom up, right? I could right now just tweet some whatever I want, right? And potentially could reach millions of people. Now, my follower, following on Twitter is not big enough that I would ever reach that amount, but like, you know, you get the drift, right? But, like, it, it just fundamentally changes what can be done, for good and for bad, right? So, for good, we see it in, like, people who can circumvent traditional power structures that would otherwise suppress uh, some voices, right? Like, so we saw it in the Arab Spring, uh, where people got to talk about things and, and congregate in the Tahrir Square, for instance, and really take power to some extent, right? Um, then we also see it in the negative way, right? Because all of a sudden there's a proliferation, without those editorial checks, of bullshit, um, to put it uh, sort of delicately, right? Because no one can check what I say, right? Well, hold on, you can say, well, you can go in and fact-check the little things and stuff like this, right? But what if you don't believe in those fact-checkers? What if you're someone who disbelieves that the people who are working for whatever social media company are honest about it, right? Then it becomes a mark of pride to be fact-checked against this thing, right? So all of a sudden you're releasing sort of the Kraken uh, if you will in good and for for good and for bad and um, and I think that's also where AI comes in in the next generation right like uh, the idea that in five to seven years probably that we'll have some kind of deep fake capacity to uh, say uh, simulate a BBC and well known BBC broadcaster slap on the BBC brand and then put it on Twitter now that it's being moderated much less right um, like that for me is a f- phenomenally red flag in terms of uh, trusting information in that space. There was an example yesterday of uh, a fake obituary being shared by, quote-unquote, The Guardian. It was a crypto scam.
0: Um, we had, uh, the, you've got the mic? Yeah, go for it. Thank you.
4: I, mean, I just want to start by saying thank you for such an interesting discussion. But I guess this is a topic you've touched on already, but to what extent is the ability to change policy and implement policy, hindered by the lack of faith in institutions, and what are the opportunities that the legislature is missing out as a result of this? OK, lack of faith in
0: institutions, and what is the legislature missing out as a result of that? It's OK, we might, I might start with Connor on that, and then see if Stella's got anything to add. Yeah, no,
3: I think that uh, Stella probably has a lot to say about it. Yeah. I think the <laughs> lack of faith in Parliament is the sharpest thing I've noticed in my professional life and it has been the result of the destructive capacity of MPs to engage in behaviour which is manifestly inappropriate and has been the result of old media coverage which has constantly destroyed, destroyed, destroyed and has not replaced it with anything. And this plays in favour of established power. And we've seen that in the United States. If there is deep cynicism about politics, then power retains its capacity to be incapable of being affected by a coherent political intervention to its detriment. So unfortunately, the lack of faith in institutions starts with, I think, Parliament. Oddly, before I end, as somebody who was deeply sceptical of judges for years, there has been an immense increase in faith in judges. So we have today uh, Lady Justice uh, Hallett, And there is a general acceptance of her plausibility as a referee in this situation arising out of the pandemic, it was the same with inquiries into torture. And it was the same with inquiries into Grenfell, where uh, a barrister was really very moving in the end in his description of the impact on ordinary people of what happened in Grenfell. So oddly, not all institutions have been similarly affected. And I find myself in the bizarre position of thinking that the law's elite independence of government has provided a residual capacity to bring government to account which is absent in Parliament today.
0: I'm actually going to have to um, use that as a provocation for a conversation that continues in the reception, sadly. And apologies to the questioner at the back because we've reached the end of our um, time. I mean, I I hope you'll see that what we were doing today was just throwing up the dust in the air. We we don't know where it's going to settle and to kind of put our hands up and say we're not uh, all doing a great job at things. But it did seem that, you know, despite uh, opening up more questions than we're answering, that we are converging on some common threads. The most salient to me is this idea of you know, if you think about people and behaviour, think about the context or the system they're in. And maybe that means that what we need to change is not the people and the behaviour, it's the context and the system. And exactly how we might want to change that, maybe we should listen to people um, uh, in, terms of, in terms of the kinds of um, relational, affective, cognitive uh, concerns that they have um, for where to go. I'm not sure if that works as a unifying theme, but I, I do <laughs> invite you all to uh, continue to discuss with us um, in the reception right after. And um, Um, Thank those from joining us online. Uh, Thank all uh, four of our speakers joining us here and online. And um, thank uh, all of you in the room too. And a reminder just to enjoy the rest of the festival. Thank you. Thank you for listening.